Welcome to the Film Trooper Podcast, where filmmakers become entrepreneurs. With my dad, he's a dork. Hi, and welcome to the Film Trooper Podcast. I'm your host, Scott McMahon. And today is the sixth episode, um, actually the second part of my in-depth interview with screenwriter Randall Johnson. Randall has uh, written uh, the movie The Doors and The Mask of Zorro. And in um, this episode, he's going to talk about his first sold script called Dudes. And we recorded this uh, about a year and a half ago, two years ago, uh, over in uh, Lake Oswego, which is um, about 15, 10 minutes outside of Portland, just like southwest of Portland. Anyhow, we did the recording in a Irish pub bar called Mares. And you'll notice that in the recording, I probably pronounce it Mars, and that's incorrect because it's uh, the Irish uh, spelling um, M-A-H-E-R, kind of like um, the comedian Bill Maher, um, Bill Maher. What's, wait a minute, now I'm all confused. Is it Maher or Mar? I think it's Mar because you would say Bill Maher, and it's written the same way. So it gets us, I guess I was right. It is, it is Mars. I do want to make a correction because in the episodes where I recorded my interview with Bryce Fordner, the cinematographer for Portlandia, we were recording at Dots Cafe in southeast Portland, and I think I mentioned that it was in northeast Portland, so I am sorry to the people at Dots because they are loyal listeners. Actually, I don't think I have anybody listening yet, but uh, maybe, you know, in the future they might. Okay, so again, this is not going to be the normal format of the Film Trooper podcast. Um, This is a pulling from an archive recording, but it's still some good content. So if you want to know more about the Film Trooper podcast, please just go back to episode one and listen to the short 15, 16 minutes of me ramble about what it's all about. All right, enough of that. Let's get on with my uh, second part of my interview with screenwriter Randall Johnson. More importantly, we've got to finish <laughs> the uh, interview I had with Randall J- uh, Johnson from... Um, randalljohnson.com look it up on the website get the link <laughs> but anyway we were part two because we ended because I, this is how bad i am Th- this is the never ending conversation by the way yeah i so hope it goes on and on i hope there's like seven <laughs> parts to it but the thing is uh the, the thing is i this is how bad i am if i was a real journalist which i'm not which you know explains a lot yes is uh <laughs> i would have i would have ex- i would have taken the time to do a little bit more research because on reading your website and everything, because everything you were sharing with me was on your website, and but and when you were telling me, I was I was it was almost as if I was a new person though, because I was like, oh really? I didn't know you worked <laughs> with all those you know, uh, you know Henry Rollins and Stan Ridgeway, yeah. and you know so that was exciting for me. But it was kind of neat because being stupid as I was. Is like I was hearing for the first time, even though I could have probably prepped myself better by reading thoroughly through your website, as opposed to just glancing a few of the items when I first went through the website. Well, you but, can just peel the uh, the layers away like an onion. Yeah. For, with me. So uh, each week uh, you'll find a little something new. <laughs> so, well, this, so what we did was last we left off, you were mentioning you went to UCLA for uh, oh, yeah. screenwriting. Oh, God, yeah. So, That's and right. then you had. Um, a college, you know, friend who was working in an agency saw you somewhere on the street or something like that, and um, you know, you bumped into I don't know the coffee shop, but anyhow, they got your script because there was a whole a breed of uh, new young agents that were looking for some cool stuff, and they really latched on to a Slaughter Alley, right? If I was correct, and from that, but we got sidetracked a little bit because you said you were doing a lot of work with the, the, the exploding punk scene in the late 70s, yep. early 80s on the West Coast, so the California style, so, which is huge. It's, early it's, 80s. Yeah. yeah, so 
And you know, we're we're talking about all, uh, we were going on about Stan Ridgeway and Black Flag. We were talking about Minuteman mm-hmm. mm-hmm. and uh, the label that you created. So we kind of touched upon that, but I, I think it's still an interesting story. Mm-hmm. We can continue there. We, we were working our way on towards how you got dudes made or how, how it got picked up, like your first screenplay, right. and all that kind right. of stuff. Um, let's see. Gosh, well, backing up a bit. Um, yeah, I ran into my friend Howard, Howard Sanders, uh, who I'd gone to film school with, and how he had become an agent or was aspiring to be an agent at the William Morris Agency. And so when I ran into him, he was literally working in the mailroom at William Morris at the time. How, and and he said, you know, what happened to Slaughter Alley? Oh, yeah. yeah. You know, how big, like, give me perspective, like, how big was William Morris at that time? Oh, it, Morris was huge. It was okay. one of the established... Uh, you know, agencies that had been in show business forever. Um, it was so old, as a matter of fact, that I was, there was a lot of talk about William Morris at that time, that like, how interested were they really in the entertainment business? Because apparently most of their financial holdings were in real estate. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So it was, it was kind of an interesting thing. Um, but at that time, William Morris... Um, uh, ICM, CAA were kind of like the big three. UTA hadn't really emerged yet. Right. Um, what was in, no. Where was Endeavor at that point? They really were. Informed? They were there. Um, I th- actually no. I take that back. I think Endeavor Ooh. started with um, after a bunch of guys that I had met at Morris, and then later ICM split, uh, jumped ship, and started Endeavor. Okay, um, okay. Okay, and then it, Endeavor became Endeavor and yeah. ultimately came back and merged with Morris. Right, okay. I mean, it just goes to show you what goes around comes around, you know, that the, the sharks eventually devour <laughs> one another. <laughs> they are, they are. It's an amazing machine and how much they um, survive and how they, they find their paws and different things. Like, it's mm-hmm. taken them a while to get involved with the interactive industry as well so slowly yeah but. yeah they're a little slow on the pickup but uh, I mean UTA is really I think hot on the interactive in the media uh, you know new media whatever you want to call it uh, right yeah. now I think but um, yeah th- I mean you know again a game world um, you know and this whole internet thing uh, that that was just that's like you know, it was it was dull. It wasn't interesting to yeah. to the established uh, industry at that time. Right. And of course, now you know everything is migrating into that, and uh, so it, that stuff is moving front and center a lot more. Where it certainly has a lot more respect than it used to. Right. Um, you know, um, I would have meetings after I wrote Gun, and again, I'm jumping ahead here, but. After I wrote Gun or was writing Gun, I was still, you know, I would go around and have meetings with a production company or, you know, a studio or something. And uh, this is what you've been doing lately. And I said, well, I've been writing, you know, this game, this video game. Oh, yeah, I guess that's kind of an, yeah, people are doing that. Right. It was <laughs> like, like oh, it, hey, yeah, that's yeah cool. it was just it was it was it was something that didn't have any respect. Yeah. No. In the I... business. And now, you know, hello. Right. Um it's it's got you know, it's I mean it's devouring the business in one sense. Oh know, yeah, it's a know, total so, so uh, for sure. It's, hey, it's very different. Yeah, please drink, eat. Mm-hmm. I can always pause this. It's always good. <laughs> By the way, for those who might be listening, I'm having a very delicious pumpkin flavored pumpkin chocolate flavored. Um, 
um, stout. Is was it? it a stout or was it um, a? Um, um, yeah, it's a little it's a little lighter than a stout. It's the. Um, that's all right. We'll we'll figure it out when they come down. We'll get it. Yeah. We'll get the. We'll get the. I'm gonna get one after my yeah. uh, Stella here, and it's quite good. So, <laughs> um, you know, happy Halloween, everyone. Seriously, and today <laughs> today was sort of the first day that got kind of cold. A little bit cold. Yeah, yeah. So. I went out. I went out running. It was 36 this morning when I got up. I noticed. Um, yeah, it's taken a while and, uh, for us to get yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. And I went out running today, and it was like, ooh, it's a little chilly. Here it comes. Here comes chilly. winter. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> it sounds great. The skies are just, it wasn't a cloud in the sky. I know. We've the been lucky. leaves are on the changing and on the ground, and it's just, it's beautiful, man. It's been, yeah, real nice. I love so. it. I love it. Cool. <laughs> I know Mr. Surfer oh, no, over here. Good. I had Mr. Gr- South Seas you know, I, is like. <laughs> I actually had a great um, weekend surfing. Oh, did you? So yeah. I no complaints yeah. there. Cool. So it's cool. all good. Oh, so anyway, going back. Yeah. You got your friends. Yeah. So Roy so Morris. I ran into Howie Sanders and um, it was like literally on the street in Beverly Hills somewhere and he just said, "Dude, what what happened with Slaughter Alley?" And I said, "Well, the, the whole project fell through." I had to go back to the mail room, my mail room, uh, at the Academy of Motion Pictures, and uh, I was working there, and I said, nothing's happening with this script. And he said, well, give it to me, because he said, I'm in the mail room now at, at Morris, and um, I can get it to some young agents there who are really hungry, and it makes me look good as well. So um, he said, believe me, he said, <laughs> given the stuff that I'm reading there in the mail room, which is what every aspiring mm-hmm. uh, uh, agent has to do, he said, there's a lot of people far less talented than you that are making a lot of money. So he said, I think you could, you, you should, you, you could get represented here. So I did. I gave it to him. And sure enough, um, a couple of days later, I got a call from... You know, um, uh, uh, a young agent over there, and I invited me over to uh, to, to basically meet, and um, I signed with them. Um, I met with actually a pair of agents there: um, Carol Yumkus and a guy named Rick Jaffa. Who Rick Jaffa is now a writer himself, and he and his wife Amanda Silver they wrote a wonderful movie called um, "The Hand That Rocks the Cradle." Ah. And most recently. They wrote uh, the remake of the Planet Planet of the Apes. Oh or, wow! Or Rise of the Planet of the Apes. Okay. You know. Yes. Um, the big hit this last summer, but Rick was my agent initially. So um, were you considered you know, like a, yeah. a pocket client? I was considered a pocket client by a guy named Shelley Weil, who has since passed away. But um, at his very established agency, he he wouldn't take me on as a regular client, but I was a pocket client based on Slaughter Alley. But he wouldn't take me on, as he said, because um, on the the merits of what he termed is uh, an exploitation Oh, okay. Uh, movie. Okay. okay. <laughs> so that was a very different. I mean, Shelley was very, very old school. Um, so when I gave it to Howard, Howard was like, this is an explanation. This is just a great script. Right, you know, right, Let's right. go. Let's go. You know, and then he got it to Rick and Carol at, at Morris, and they were they were just starting out. And they, uh, I remember Rick telling me he read it, and he just, after he finished the last page, he threw it in the air and just was like, it felt like, yes, I can sell this. I, or I can, right. you know, this is a this is a really great writer. It's just one of those moments where it goes right. It, it's a template, you know. It's seared mm-hmm. into your your memory, where it's just like, wow, great! I'm so happy that somebody loves it that much, and so they signed me. 
And then they started sending me out on meetings right away. Slaughter Alley was still under option, so they couldn't go out and sell it, but they wanted to sell me. It was a great calling card that they could use right. to sell me as a talent. So were they able to like sell it as, hey, we got the, his projects in, in option or something like that? Yes. So you got to yes. meet with him. He's hot. Blah, right. Blah. Okay. Correct. Correct. Um, and so subsequently, I went out on you know a lot of different meetings uh, with companies. I remember meeting uh, uh, with Johnny Carson's company. He had a development person at that time. That is um, strange. Yeah, yeah, yeah very strange. <laughs> um, uh, you know, it was it was just kind of interesting. You go out and it, they're basically meet and greets. Hey, how are you doing? Read your script. Really like it. It's cool. What else you got? Uh, that kind of thing. Um, well, what did you have at the time? Well, it was interesting. I didn't really have... I had some vague notions. And I went into a meeting at a company called the Vista, Vista Films, or Vista Organization. And I... after This was after a string of, of meetings with what you might call pod people. Okay, a little bit. I mean, it's just they're the obligatory meeting where they're there just like, a, hey, Oh, man. hey, look what we have here. Hey, good. We can put it on pause real quick. Sure. We're back live. Cool. We just got back. Um, just finished up our dinner. Delicious. Again, you know where we're at. Mars, Lake Oswego. Mars Irish Pub. Anyway, we were talking. And, yeah, and by the way, that uh, it's a porter. My pumpkin chocolate concoction. <laughs> Not a stout. It's a porter. It's a lighter, a little bit lighter. So quite, quite delicious. Cool. I got to get one after this beer. It's so, a meal in itself. <laughs> so the question was, um, we were talking about. Now you got your, you're in with the agency, mm-hmm. and you're going on meetings. Yeah. And uh, let's talk about that because yeah. that's one of the things that um, was exciting to see for a writer or. They do it for actors too. Like the mm-hmm. actors, if if you sometimes they want you to meet with like the director of one hour programming uh, programming for Fox or right. whatever, you're not necessarily auditioning. They just sort of want to meet you, depending on you right. know the agency. And same thing with writers. And I'm not same sure how thing. it works with directors and stuff, but same maybe thing, same think, thing. You know, I mean, it's, 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 it's a lot easier now for directors because they can they can have a reel either on a disc or they have a website and somebody can go and right. see their stuff right, right away. You know, back in those days, I mean, a director would have to leave a reel, <laughs> would have like a big fat, an actual three, film reel, yeah, or yeah, a big yeah. videotape, or right, yeah, a big fat three-quarter inch videotape or something. You know, it's like ridiculous. So when you went, what was your emotional? How, how are your emotions? That's one thing I never get like in in interviews is because a lot of interviews interviewers just sort of skip over like, oh yeah, so I got this agent, uh-huh. the agency's behind me, now they start sending me out of meetings, but never stop and say, okay, can you recall sort of the emotions you had where like, I'm going to my first meeting, and they, they tell you, I'm sure they get like a call, or they tell you, all right, you got to be here at three o'clock, you're going to meet with so-and-so at this production company, mm-hmm. they want to meet with you and talk to you about mm-hmm. This story or whatever. Exactly. I mean, so what goes on in somebody's emotions at that point? <laughs> well, I, I, I used to get really excited or, or almost uh, anxious about you know these meetings because like, why do they want to meet with me? You know, are, am I what, what? Should I have stuff ready? What? Right. What are they expecting? Do I have to pitch another story? Um, you know, and the agents would always say, No, 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 just just chill out. They just want to meet you. They read the script. They just want to know if you have any other ideas. You know, it's just a it's just a meeting. Yeah. You know, there's nothing. I used to attach a lot more 
import to the meeting than was really there. Um, <laughs> And I used to get, you know, at least initially very anxious about it. I remember just in particular, the, like the meeting with Johnny Carson's company, Terry, Terry something or other was his head of development. I used to, I, I ended up playing basketball with him at a later, a oh, really? later date. Yeah. But, um, uh, he was cool, and I. Uh, but I was very nervous about it at first because this was like one of my first professional meetings, and like you know, what do I say? What do I wear? What do I do? Right. Um, that whole thing. But you start doing enough of these, and it's and you get a little more relaxed and just be your, learn to be yourself. Right. And not um, you know, it's it's not a. It, it's always a little bit of a dog and pony show to a degree, but it's it's not. Um, uh, uh, it, 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 you shouldn't suffer from performance anxiety for something like that. They generally, if these people have been doing their job for a while, they know that writers aren't necessarily the most um, uh, polished uh, the presenters. Or? Yeah, uh, I think they're, they're, they're not. Yeah, the most uh, gregarious individuals. You know. Now, so, you know. Um, Ron Howard's partner. Brian Grazer. Yeah. I saw him in an interview on Iconoclast on um, IFC, I think mm-hmm. it was. or mm-hmm. And that show is basically kind of combining two icons or moguls for different industries. Hmm. And you, they follow him around, and it's like an hour show. But they were following him. So it was Brian Grazer and his friendship with um, Redstone, head of Viacom. Oh, you know? yeah. So Sum- it was a very... Summer Redstone. Summer, yeah, yeah. Summer. So... But then we're interviewing uh, Grazer, and he was saying that about writers. Like he, he says, he wants he he has this, the way they dress. He goes, if they're not like disheveled and like look, they're just like right off the street. And they, they, he goes, he wants his writers to be the ones that are like socially awkward, that aren't dressed to the T, that are in like like they look like that's all they do is write. Um, and that's sort of maybe is a tongue in cheek sort of um, perspective, that's- but. He, he was like he's, he was, said he was suspicious of a writer that was dressed better than he was, you know. Well, and uh, <laughs> you know, then then he just lost out on a meeting with like Aaron Sorkin, you know, or somebody of right, that right. nature. Um, you know, come on. If you if you take a look historically, photographs of writers um, from let's say the really uh, from the fifties, forties, fifties early 60s um, you know the, the writers guild has plenty of them <laughs> on file and in the in the the guild home headquarters there um, you'll see a lot of pipes <laughs> uh, but by and large they're a debonair crowd you know right. I mean Dashiell Hammett who's one of the founders of the writers guild really uh, um, he's a very debonair gentleman you know I mean dapper these guys these guys knew how to dress um, it's sort of a sad state of affairs I think what it's come to now because we are really sort of a t-shirt nation but that mm-hmm. I think that's more indicative of the, of the population in general than anything but for a long time you know the the sort of the uniform was um, a trashy T-shirt uh, and a really worn baseball cap of some sort <laughs> with some obscure uh, product uh, label on it, um, you know, and and of course jeans and uh, and a pair of um, 
you know, some kind of a, you know, a, a tennis shoe of some sneakers, you know, of high tops or something like that. You know, or, you know, Frank Darabont was was fond of particular high tops. I think at one point, you know, <laughs> classics. Um, you know, so it's kind of come to that in a, in a sense. I, I I understand what Grazer is saying, but you know, you can't make a blanket statement. Like I know. That. It's just, it was just interesting you know, to hear. He's you know he's a surver. I know. <laughs> I know. He's talking about that. He's also talking about how he got bunked in the head. And yeah. It's like you're like oh so. Yeah. Yeah. I mean you know. I, it, <laughs> but that but there is a certain. You know, it's 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 a certain look, it's a certain vibe, um, and you'll get um, sometimes you know, and they're usually clutching a lot of coffee, a coffee mug of some sort, you know, add to that. So they're <laughs> they're in line at the espresso bar, they're you know, or in the you know, you see them in Starbucks everywhere, or any kind of coffee house. Um, they're you like know. it's a given. Like any coffee shop you see in Los Angeles, there's a. Uh a laptop with uh, sure. screenwriting going sure. on. Sure. I mean, it used to be, in the old days, it used to be a note, notepad. You know? Okay. I mean, and I was one of them. I would go out because, um, you know, writing is a lonely business part of the time. Right. Or mo- for most of the time. And uh, writers rarely got out, especially if you were under pressure to get a script done or on a deadline of some sort. Um, you just didn't get out. So the only way to get out, really, was to uh, double up on function and business and what was like get to his coffee shop get some coffee and you get some work done uh and then you might vicariously experience real life in the process <laughs> you know get out of that that those four those four enclosing walls i don't know if um, it's you know yeah i don't know if i've i've done it a few times just because out of sheer i had to i was like under i had time to kill i was like oh, i gotta get some work done and I noticed that I kind of shut myself off a little bit mm-hmm. when there's a lot of noise. Because if I don't know anybody, mm-hmm. it's okay. Just put the earplugs in and, you know, mm-hmm. you do your business. Mm-hmm. But when you take your moment to take a breath or step away from whatever you're working on, the writing, it gives me a chance to sort of preserve, you know, uh-huh. human nature. And you, uh-huh. and you yeah. never know what triggers that ima- uh, inspiration. Like, you just see this, this uh, somebody ordering, you know, a latte, but the way they order it is so bizarre sure. that you're like, oh, that that's, might be interesting. But I actually found most of my success writing for, my, for me is I go to the, the public libraries, you mm-hmm. know. It's just, they have the Wi-Fi, but, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. I try to cut off the Wi-Fi because it's too easy to get yeah. distracted. Yeah. But for some reason, for me, the, the library was always a nice little getaway to get outside the, the home, stu- home sure. office and stuff. Well, libraries are great. Um, I, I, never, I never ventured to them to actually work. I would always go, I would be there to research. Right. And I would always be on a, uh, sort of a, on a mission, you know. Um, mm-hmm. And again, these are days... Uh, before the internet, I remember if I was on a, you know, a couple of projects, um, I became a lifetime member of the UCLA Alumni Association for the sole purpose that I would always have library privileges. Um, uh, <laughs> well, that makes sense. And so, yeah, um, I haven't used it now in, in a number of years. But the point was is that I used to, and again, the days before the Internet, uh, if I was researching something in a historical uh, period or something, I would go to the Graduate Research Library and just disappear. I mean, it would lead, I, I would cross-reference and go down this path and that path and that aisle and go to special collections and everything, and I loved it. I mean, it was fantastic. It was a really a, 
It was actually a physical investigation. Right. You know, you, know, you actually had to travel. You had to get in the elevator after you get to the card catalog and go upstairs or this or that or, you know, find different things. And it was, it was always a little bit of an adventure. And then there would be interesting things you would encounter along the way on the shelves and down the aisles and all that stuff. So I always, always really enjoyed that. Now, you know, I mean, it's all at your fingertips. It's crazy. So you don't do yeah. that anymore. But I never worked in a library. I always liked the vibe of it, but I never worked in it. I, I preferred to go where um, uh, I could observe people coming and going a lot. Mm-hmm. So there's a place in... in, in LA called the Apple Pan. It's um, it's down on Pico Boulevard, just just east of Westwood Boulevard, a block, and it's a little horseshoe counter in an old bungalow that's been there since 1947, and it's family owned, and they have refused to sell out, and so it's completely surrounded now by tall modern buildings, <laughs> and, and here's this little 40s style bungalow on the corner. And it's still run exactly the same way it was uh, way back when. And the menu really hasn't changed. The prices have gone up. But basically, they're making the same kind of uh, stuff on the menu. The hickory burger, hamburger, cheeseburger, tuna fish sandwich, ham sandwich. It's been on the, on the menu since 1947. Um, but I used to go there because I, I lived not too far from it. And it stayed open relatively late. It would stay open till midnight on on weeknights and then 1 o'clock in the morning on, on the weekends. And I used to take a corner seat and go in there with a notebook, order a lot of coffee. And I would go in about an hour before closing and uh, get something to eat and drink a lot of coffee, make a lot of notes, and then go home and work through the night. But I used to see tons of people coming through there and a lot of celebrities. I mean, mm-hmm. I saw everyone from, you know, Warren Beatty was with a beautiful woman there one night. Um, Gene Siskel. I, I met Gene Siskel actually right after the doors came out. Um, oh, really? Yeah. And he and Roger Ebert had interviewed, uh, had reviewed it on the show. And I happened to look up and I said, oh my God, there's Gene Siskel. How weird is that? So I went over to him and introduced myself. I said, I wrote the doors. You know, and he said, "Oh my gosh!" Well, he's a big music fan, or like pop icon fan, anyway. Oh, I didn't. I, I wasn't aware of that. But anyway, he was like, "Oh wow, that's really cool." So you know, and so we, but we ended up talking less about the Doors and more about the Apple Pan because he always liked oh. to go to it <laughs> whenever he was in town. And so it was like, well, "What's your favorite thing on the menu?" You know. Ah, there you go. And I sort of said, "Well, I like the hickory burger, and he liked the tuna fish sandwich." And you know, it's a tough call on that on that. <laughs> but but it was fun. You know, I mean, some of the Lakers used to be in there. I, I would I saw a lot. Um, just a lot of movie stars that right. would kind of come in, and, and it would be you know, sort of incognito. It would be very low-key, but it was fun. It was fun to see, and then just lots of very interesting, weird people. And then, of course, the guys that are working there are old pros, so <laughs> they've been there forever, ever. And a couple of the waiters, you know, I mean, just holy cow, you know. <laughs> so there were lots of stories even about those guys, even. You know, now so that wonderful. you're... Now that you're up here in the north, in Portland, mm-hmm. um, do you find yourself going out and observing um, sort of human behavior up here or anything? Or well, it's it's really tempting too, and I, I relish it when I do get the chance. But I don't step out like I used to to go and work, you mm-hmm. know. Um, and that's basically because um, I got a family, mm-hmm. you know, now, and I want to be at home with them that night. Um, I don't write 
excuse me, right through the night like I used to. Mm-hmm. And I used to work after getting all jacked up on coffee. apple apple pan <laughs> coffee. Um, you know, I would work until I would hear the paper delivered. You know, on my doorstep at at the driveway about uh, you know five six in the morning or so, and then I'd hit the hay and sleep until noon or whatever, and uh, you know get up and kind of start the day procrastinate the day away <laughs> until 10 o'clock at night and start writing again. But, um, so I don't get out like I did. Um, and, uh, but when I do go out and I, you know, go to the, you know, fine drinking establishments like this and whatever, it's like, yeah, it brings back a lot of em- memories in terms of wanting to do that. And if you go to any, you know, uh, uh coffee house now and at least in Portland geez you walk in and everybody's on the hovering over their screen you know you never see anyone with a notebook anymore making notes right. they're all hovering over their screens you know yeah and it's so it's very difficult to tell like who's who's real and who's not <laughs> <laughs> I used to do that I used to go in and see a lot of people making notes or writing or something like you know is he really is he real is he someone is he not yeah <laughs> Right. Is she really good, a good writer or not? You know, she's cute, but is she an actress? Is she a writer? Yeah. You know, you know that kind of thing. There's, I have friends that um, these girls would tell me in, in, in L.A., it's like they would always meet these cute guys, the waiters or whatever they are. And then, sure enough, they're all actors, you know. And yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're like, and like as they got older and they got more professional, they're like, ah, oh, geez, you know. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's funny getting back to these, you know, these rounds of meetings that I was that my yes. new agents were sending me on. Um, you know, as a as a writer, you know, um, well, once I started getting paid as a writer, you just didn't get out that often. You know, I mean, it was you were <laughs> you were working. And I took it very seriously, so I was, you know, always working and angsting away over my stuff. So to actually go out on a meeting was was like, hey, wow, I'm actually going out and mixing with society. Oh, the and sun. It, yeah, yeah, all, yeah there's all this stuff. <laughs> and invariably, um, you know, you go to these uh, production companies or studios or, uh, and meet with an executive there, and they would always have a beautiful young woman uh, working the front desk. Right, when you right, right. They all do. And so, yeah. And because that, that was also, it's never stated, but it's implied. If you have a hot chick, you know, as you're working as your assistant or, uh, um, you know, receptionist, then you are... Um, uh, you too are a sexy individual. You know, you know your cachet, your your relativity in, to importance in the business is, you know, your stock goes up. Right. right. So, um, but invariably, I would always meet these wonderful, and a lot of them were just really, really great. And I would always <laughs> would end up like, you know, these were the only women I would meet. So I would be unabashed about like asking them out. I made a fool out of myself a number of times. Times, oh, you know, interesting. interesting but, but my roommate at the time used to kid me. He was like, oh, you had a meeting today? Did you ask anybody out? <laughs> <laughs> As a matter of fact, I did. Yeah. So yeah, there you yeah. go. <laughs> so if any of us who uh, up-and-coming writers or find themselves in uh, opportunities for meetings, any um, words of wisdom you can give just them? Just be yourself. You know. No, oh. I mean in the dating part. Oh, I'm just kidding. The... <laughs> <laughs> well, just be yourself. <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, it's different. It's different now. Yeah. You don't, you, you know, that's not your only outlet you know i mean mm-hmm. you're on if you're on on the on the net you know you're gonna find 
people via Facebook, via you know dating services, eHarmony, whatever. You know, there's, there's so many different ways now to get hooked up without ever leaving your your four walls you know right I mean, that's that to me this was the lifeline this was the only way out you know you had to get out is actually have a meeting or go to the apple pan and have a cup of coffee and hope you sit a beautiful girl sits next to you but that <laughs> rarely happened rarely happened well it's funny you know? i think uh, my actor friends would tell me it was very difficult they say it's difficult to date in la because it's sort of implied or understood that Everyone's here for themselves and their career, and it's yeah. self-absorbed. Oh yeah. So, to find time to, sh- to you know to share with somebody else is very very difficult, and uh, why it's difficult to date there. So I, I it made sense well, to me for maybe the acting circles. I don't know, but well, everybody's everybody. it, you know. I think I think it applies across the boards. You know, everybody's there to become famous. You know, let's mm-hmm. face it, they're looking to 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 climb up. <laughs> and so you're you're thrown in into this into this sort of you know whatever you want to call it a pool of people who are social climbers um they, they could be shallow they can be sincere they can be uh, artists they truly want to make art but they don't know how to do it I mean there's everything's all you know kind of thrown together so it's really hard to read people at first they come across very sincere but you know sometimes they're not you know and, right. and these are just some of the hard lessons of human behavior you just sort of go through in your 20s uh, when you're when you're trying to make it that uh, <laughs> just like oh god you know you get your heart broken a couple of times and like oh have really lousy experiences, yeah. But it all becomes great. Yeah, you know, g- goes into the uh, the into the, the the hard drive of your head for uh, fodder for later scripts. And, That's true. You know, and stuff. So you become a student of, of human behavior, if you will. However, if I had known what the Northwest holds, <laughs> you know, for one aspiring uh, writer. Um, Back then, I would have come up here a long time ago. Oh, interesting. You know, I think, yeah, yeah. Um, and, I mean, of course, I'm married now, but I've found that the the girls up here, you know, just in chatting and stuff, they're so much more friendly and open and sincere than they were in L.A. And, right. And I think it's just because, you know, Portland doesn't have the stigma of... Trying people coming there to be famous. Nobody comes to Portland to be famous. I don't That's think. True. I don't think unless maybe you're a musician or something and you want to become one of the Decembrists or something. <laughs> you know. But um, you know, it's a, it's you go to New York or you go to uh, or you go to uh, L.A. and that's where the that's the real big business centers are. However, that is all changing. But um, it's very right. You know, but still, kind of yeah, a, the ones that need it that sort of need that. Yeah, just constant approval. Or, oh, or to yeah. make it. I mean, look. Yeah. I mean, there always there are insecure people everywhere, and there's always you know everything is sort of relative that we're talking about a certain archetype in a way. But but by and large, I just found people actually in the Northwest, all in all, being very much more open and sincere. And uh, yeah, I just, agree. Just, I think you know you're great great to hang with. Yeah, know, there's a fun. definite sense of um, independent spirit or just pure mm-hmm. art. Mm-hmm. Or for you know, in their perspective, is yeah, oh, yeah. art for art's sake, or just yeah. just weird for weird sake. Oh, yeah, you know? I, I <laughs> that's know, all man. it is. And you're like, okay, oh, I, I can roll with this. Oh gosh, but the, I, yeah, I mean, back in those days, again, and also when I was simultaneous with all this, I was in 
heavily into the music scene, though. So I did have more of an outlet because I was going out a lot late at night to see punk bands play and yeah. go to these really shitty little clubs in the, <laughs> on the east side. You know, I mean, a place called the Vex. I remember um, um, the 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 on. Well, there was the On Club in Silver Lake. There was. Al's Bar downtown. I mean, these were, and, and this was downtown. This was way downtown. I mean, this was no man's land right. in, in 81, 82, or whatever. And it was unbelievable. I mean, there's nothing, and it's all changed now, you know. I mean, the people, the what people was... who live in there, but, but I would invariably see these very interesting art damaged women with moon tans that have a really heavy duty <laughs> goth look or sometimes they would be tattooed it was almost pre-tattooed kind of thing mm-hmm. but you know ruby red lipstick and pale white skin and then just like you know have this really bored art vibe about them that I just I, I fell for the oh love it's like hook that. line and sinker and that's yeah. commonplace up here now yeah yeah <laughs> except that they're not uh, as uh, jaundiced in, in or uh, you know um, um, much more open and friendly here <laughs> right, you know, right a little more tattooed and pierced even now than they were but you know definitely LA, exploded but, that way yeah, for sure but anyway <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I no, digress it's, no it's, it's good to observe me because I I want to I want to I want to um, divert to that later uh-huh. but I want to get back to um, so you're going on these meetings mm-hmm. um, what was the sur- the first break that says we want to hire you or you know we're doing this with Slaughter Alley or you know what what was the first after all these meetings we're like Oh my God! It's actually turning into something. Well, it's a it's a good question because it is uh, Oregon related, actually, and I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you about it. Uh, tell you what the connection is. Um, I went to a meeting call, uh, at a company called uh, the Vista Organization, and uh, they were they were independent. They had a bunch of Canadian money, I think, is what it was. So they didn't have any ties with the studio or whatever, and. Uh, there was this guy, Miguel Tejada Flores, was the head of development there, and uh, he wanted to meet me. So I show up, and this is after I've had a number of meetings with pod people, you know, who, again, very friendly. Oh, yeah, really like your stuff, but it goes nowhere. Right, right. Right, you know, and you just, and you kind of exit these meetings and go, what was that about? What, you know, did he really like my stuff or is he just saying so or what you know what what is this yeah so i finally go in and and invariably these meetings were you know in clean offices and really you know tasteful tastefully decorated furniture was surrounded you i i had a meeting with a uh a young uh, aspiring well a young producer he was the son of a studio head at a certain studio and i met at his bungalow um, on the west side, it was at Fox actually, and I remember in our meeting there, he had a glass coffee table, okay, that was had, and we were there were these two couches that were perpendicular to each other around this uh, on the corner of this glass coffee table, and on the table was this bowl of peanuts, and so as we were having our sit down and starting to chat, he reached in. And like started, uh, grabbed a bunch of peanuts and started cracking them. Oh, like, shell peanuts. Yeah, okay. shell peanuts. Yeah, like they were, you know, like he was at a ball game, and just letting the shells just drop on the thick shag carpet uh, <laughs> beneath him, not making any effort whatsoever to clean it up or 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 
not make a mess. He was deliberately just dropping it there and eating these peanuts as we were talking. And I thought that was the strangest thing. Um, and I've often thought about that. It was an image that I'll never forget because it made me think, is, is he trying to show me how powerful he is by the fact that he's going to... He don't you give know, a shit? Yeah. 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 He's just going to let the... <laughs> Let the help right. come in and pick right. it up afterwards, or was he just clueless? You know, yeah. was that the way he was raised? You know, right. you know, I don't know. It was very, very odd. So I had all these weird meetings. So then I come to the Vista organization, come to meet Miguel Tata Flores, and I walk into this office, and it's just chaos. It's just packed with scripts and books, and there's shit everywhere. There's toys all <laughs> over the desk, and. And I, re- I remember see- my first view of him, he, he was working, um, he was at his computer, which was at that time was a big box, boxy uh, computer called a K-Pro, which was made in San Diego. I oh, think. okay. They were manufactured in, in San Diego. But he was at this K-Pro computer, and he looked up over the top of it, and he had these <laughs> big black-rimmed glasses, and he said, Randy Johnson? And, and I said, yes, and he said, um... Oh, Miguel Tata Flores, you know, a Red Slaughter Alley. I fucking love it. Uh, what else you got? <laughs> and we just sit down, and I just felt like, oh, my gosh, you know, here's a nut, but he's a sincere nut, and he's all about making movies and telling stories and uh, weird stuff, and it was just fun. We just clicked immediately. So he said, what else you got? And I just sort of threw out punk rockers in the middle of Wyoming. <laughs> and he says, I love it. Come back when you have a story. And I did. And I came back a couple weeks later with a little more story. And he said, I like that. Keep coming back. Did you have an outline or, nothing, or treatment or nothing. anything? Nothing. I just was, I, it was, it, it was just the germ of a, of a, of a notion that ultimately became dudes. Mm-hmm. Um, but what it was was that I had been going to so many punk rock shows and it, it had struck me um, as being a very tribal hey, oh my god you're here what's up <laughs> hey, dude. how did you know we come down hey hey to Frederick man hey, Frederick this Randall. is Randall yeah. nice to meet you yeah you too just wanted to visit guys no, 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 no. <laughs> what are you doing I'm having I'm upstairs with Adam with my buddy I told him I want you to oh yeah 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 hold on let me bring you down real quick hold on <sighs> alright alright we're back sorry we got a little uh I had no idea Frederick was here. I thought he left already. <laughs> but it sounds like there's going to be a big party here Saturday night for him. So he came down to say hi and uh, introduce me as friend. So there you he's, go. He's, he's going to do that in every subsequent interview you do I think now. we should. He's just, he's just going to show up. He's like the you know? court he's jester. Gonna, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's in know? the cards. But, you know, his personality is so big and, and uh, joyous. That's why when he gets here, like, everybody knows him. He's like sure. Norm. Oh, Norm. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Totally. I get it. get it. So we're, um, that's where we so, were. Well, I was at back, oh, meanwhile, you're, you're back at, the guy. Uh, at Vista. Yes. What? Yes. Yeah. The guy said, yeah, Miguel I fucking love it. Flores. Yeah. I fucking what else love you got for me? And, uh, how did you come up with that anyway? We were just at the punk shows, or just something. Well, in the yeah, mind? that's what I was saying. Is that I've been going to all these punk shows, you know, and the whole thing had struck me. Uh, so sort of the, the the hardcore scene in California at that time and was was very was very tribal. Um, you know, you had your social distortion tribe, you had your your black flag tribe, you had the Dead Kennedys, and uh, and and each 
each sort of faction, each tribe had their, there were subtle differences in their, in, in, in how they looked. Right. <laughs> um, you know, the Orange County punks were a little different from the Hollywood punks. The, the Valley, uh, the LA Valley punks were different from some of those guys. You know, you had a lot of different skinheads or spike heads and, you know, um, the, the, that whole thing. But it, it, it was just a, it was a very interesting thing. And then, plus, you had the, the bands were um, almost embracing the kind of uh, a Western kind of quality. The, the, well, especially like Stan Ridgway. Right? Well, well, yeah. sure. You know, Stan, I mean, when he was, he, he was still with Wall of Voodoo at the time. And Swallow Voodoo, although they were not punk, they were um, on the edge of that kind of uh, uh, art-damaged new wave right, experimental right. sound stuff. And they, they had a medley of, uh, of spaghetti western stuff. They used to, I, I remember <laughs> seeing them the first time. You know, not only did they cover Johnny Cash's Ring of Fire, which was their signature show piece, uh, they really deconstructed that. You know, and, and they had a big, booming Mark Moreland, who was their guitarist. Uh, had just this great twangy guitar sound that m- evoked the the old old school uh, instrumentalists, you know, the guys that backed up Johnny Cash and those kind of guys back then. Uh, it was just a Western sound to it, you know. Mm-hmm. But they but they incorporated in their show. They had a medley of of uh, spaghetti Western songs. So they I remember seeing them first time, and they played uh, "Hang 'Em High" and "The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly" and uh, some other thing too. And it was like, wow. This is freaking wild. I love this. It was just, it was really great. So they were, the Dead Kennedys had covered like a rawhide right, uh, from the TV right. show, and uh, um, uh, the Vandals came out of uh, Long Beach. They had a, a thing called uh, Urban Struggle, which was all about uh, the, the punkers at the Cuckoo's Nest in, uh, in Orange County having a, like a big. <laughs> epic battle with punkers from you know another planet. Yeah. It was all done like a like a cowboy kind of twang. Well, I do, yeah, it, I so. do recall the, so, the sound quite a bit. Yeah, because it was it was that um, the guitar itself. They used those sort of big semi hollow hollow body guitars, the big right um, right Gretz guitar, you know, the '50s style guitar, and sort of like has the artwork too. Sort of like you said, it was that rock and roll um, hot rod subculture that kind of bled over where it's. Yeah, you know, had that yeah. big, well, big twang distortion sound. You know, I mean, that, that simultaneous with all this was like the blasters and this whole rockabilly revival, right. you know, thing. The, the Alley Cats were not, not the Alley Cats. The Stray Cats were the um, the very commercial mm-hmm. sort of uh, tip of that uh, of that sort of phenomenon. But that was a uh, and that and that was happening all at the same time. And there was some overlap with the punk stuff with the blasters, especially, but. And this is all. There was a band called the Plugs that were really great. Came out of East LA, and uh, in Los Lobos then, and and all those, all those, they, and X then in the center yes, of all X, that embraced right. all those things with the hardcore and and then you know X they're all they're all crackers you know they're they, they, they're all hillbillies you know they love right. they, they they love all that country twangy stuff from way back when yeah and social distortion and, evolved and, into and that absolutely with, mike ness is right. you know a huge country fan because they recognize that the you know that those guys they were the they were the outlaws of their day mm-hmm. you know and a lot of them as in the context of the time you know when they were recording for sun records or whatever they were they were they were breaking new ground. You right. Know, this was, it wasn't like the, the necessary 
necessarily the the the, the mainstream music. This was this right. was like a whole new sound, you know. So anyway, going back to all of this, I just had seen like this sort of kind of new Western landscape in the punk scene, and and so, uh, but at the same time, I mean, punk was primarily a, an urban or suburban you know phenomenon. So mm-hmm. I thought, well, gee. How funny would it be to take some of these hardcore punkers, you know, who are like, you know, all all full of aggression and 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 piss and vinegar, and throw them out into the re- realities of the West? <laughs> and, you know, so drop them right in the middle of Wyoming or Montana or something like that, and see well, what would happen. And so that was the germ of the of the idea. And then I kept coming back. And, urged on by Miguel, kept coming back every couple of weeks or so with a little bit more of a story, a little bit more of a story. So you're writing on spec at this time. Completely. There's nothing, no agreement, nothing. He just said, he expressed interest. He just, he says, I like that. And and he knew he couldn't option Slaughter Alley at the time because it was under options or somewhere else. He liked my writing a lot and he liked this idea, this sort of, he thought I was onto something. So he just kept urging me on. And so finally, uh, there was another guy there, a guy named Hank Palmieri, who has subsequently passed away a surfer great surfer grew up in Malibu Hmm. really bright guy really brilliant guy and um, such a good one of the best people I ever met in the business and he was Miguel's partner at the time too and so between the two of them I just thought these guys are fantastic I so (laughs) totally want to be in business with them and it, they kept urging me back, and finally, uh, there and there was a writer strike looming. This is 1985, and there was a writer strike looming, and so there was a certain amount of uh, there was a ticking clock that we had to get this, get something done, you know, before the strike kicked in, because God knows who who how long the strike was going to last. So finally, what they were you in the they, guild at the time? No, I wasn't. But that was the thing. In order, if they made a deal, I was going to have to get into the guild, and ah, it was, you know okay. this whole thing. So both, basically, what happened was, I went in there one day, and Miguel says, "Okay, you got, we got enough. Let's make this. Let's make a deal. Let's make this happen." And so they uh, they made the deal. It was a rush, rush thing, and basically, I got some money, and they just said, "We can't communicate with you now." You know, because because when, as soon as the strike okay. is going to kick in, but we want you to go ahead and start writing the script. So maybe after wink, wink, after the strike is over with, we'll have a script, right? Got it. So the strike the strike was actually settled in a couple of weeks. It didn't last long at all, comparative to subsequent strikes. And um, so in the meantime, though. Um, I went out on uh, an adventure of myself uh, out into the contemporary West because I hadn't been out there since I was a kid. So I went out to Arizona, Utah, um, Nevada. You know, I kind of did this kind of long sweeping tour. You know, and just wandering around. I went. To, I was really into ghost towns, so I wanted to visit ghost towns. And and it was out when I, I remember this very clearly. I was driving on a on a highway heading to west towards Ely, Nevada, and suddenly I got the whole very clear picture of what the movie was all about. Yeah, but it involved jettisoning a lot of the story I had already worked out <laughs> Isn't with that those the case? guys. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I just like I knew how to do it. I suddenly saw it. I knew how to do it. So I, I got on a got in a phone booth somewhere and I called them and I remember getting Hank on the phone 
and I said, Hank, I got it. I got it. I got the story. I finally, you know, and, and, uh, know what it is. And I explained it to him. And he said, well, yeah, I, I, it sounds kind of good. But what about the other stuff? And I said, no, no, forget the other stuff. Forget it. Forget it. This is, <laughs> this is it. I know how to do it. And he was really kind of nervous about it. But um, he said, okay, he gave me this approval to go ahead and do it. And so ultimately I came back from this trip and it was really eye-opening for me as well. It was really great. I went to all these different places that it was just evocative in so many ways that I came back and wrote the first draft and uh, they loved it. And they had, they started sending it around and we got a director attached pretty early on. And, you know, it, Penelope Spheris uh, had read it and she was coming off of, um, well, she had done her claim to fame, of course, was the decline of Western civilization. Right. Uh, but she'd only done the first one at that point. And she had done another, uh, several other sort of low-budget exploitation films, one for, like, Roger Corman and stuff, you know. And uh, so, But she was kind of like the punk rock queen. Right. And... I remember Miguel telling me, he said, well, Penelope came in and she impressed the shit out of us and we're going to hire her to direct this movie. Um, And she said, he said she came into the meeting and said, basically, there are two people that can direct this movie, me and Alex Cox, um, who did Repo Man at that time, which was the kind of like the other, you know, sort of, you know, and Alex had been a a teacher's aide at UCLA film school when I was there. Um, I knew we had a couple of people, friends in common a little bit, you know, and so I knew, knew him a bit or knew of him, certainly. And, uh, Anyway, so that was that was it. They started they, they things started rolling very very quickly from that point on. And then once dudes was in production, that led to the doors and other things. Okay, let's let's roll back here. So, okay. you are what kind of what was the your agent's perspective of you when they you told them like, hey, uh, these guys are interested in me developing the story. Do you I mean? What how what is their reaction like? Okay, yeah, keep keep going. Or? Yeah, oh sure, of course. You know they don't want to. Knowing that you're wanna... not on like any sort of contract, you're just on spec. It's on at, at this at this point. Yeah, they were just saying okay. Mm-hmm. You know, go for it. Let them let you know if they're interested. Keep them keep them on the line. Get the story done. You know, get a story out there that you that they're gonna that they're gonna like. They weren't real meddlesome at that point. They were just sort of taking a. Uh, a back seat. The one agent that I had, Carol, I didn't necessarily trust her in terms of of feedback. Is this a good idea or is this a bad idea? I see. You know, um, so I wouldn't test the waters with her. Rick was a different story. Rick had a better story since I felt they both could sell very well. Okay. Um, so. Uh, I didn't consult Carol in the sense of like, Carol, do you think this is a good idea? Should I do it? Uh, or, I mean, should I develop this story? Um, it wasn't like that at all. Um, I was just, I knew this was the story that I wanted to tell, and she was going to make the deal for me when, this, when the time was right. So there's a difference there. You know, a lot of people go to their agents and look at them almost as if they are a studio executive or a, the head of a production company and... and and think that they might have some artistic taste. I think that's dangerous. <laughs> that's dangerous to a degree to trust your agent as being someone who really has taste. Oh, I gotcha. <laughs> their, yeah. their deal is to sell, you know, and make mm-hmm. the sale. That's what they're about. And that doesn't necessarily mean they have taste. 
It means right. they can take a product once they see it, once it's done, and they can sell it. But it doesn't necessarily they uh, that doesn't mean that they can necessarily see it as it is forming. You know, um, now there are others who can and have that ability and have that sense of like that's a very good idea. Go for it. I like or I like how you're thinking. You know, um, uh, but that's not always the case. So you what, know, just let that be a warning sometimes too. <laughs> yeah, you know, if you're yeah, if you got yourself representation. Sure. Now, sure. what? Um, you were just working still at the mailroom, I was. Yeah, I was right? still I was still in the mailroom, and then finally when that when they pulled the trigger on on that. The I first got, was it the first paycheck that we were. Well, the, well, the first payment, the, were you able to take your trip, like take yeah. an extended leave from yeah. the mailroom yeah. to do yeah. your... Uh, well, that was it. This time it was it was enough. It was substantially more money than I got on the Slaughter Alley option and the, okay. and the stuff that I had. I, you know, I mean, at the time it was like, geez, I don't know. It was like $25,000, $40,000, something like that. That's pretty you know? good. Yeah, shit. Yeah. yeah. So, are you kidding? Jeez, man, it was more money than I'd ever seen. So yeah. it was definitely enough for me to finally say, okay, goodbye to the mailroom, uh, and finally, it, right. and go for it. Um, and also, at that stage, I had to become a member of the Writers Guild. So that's okay. just the way, because Vista was a guild signatory, mm-hmm. and I mm-hmm. had to become a member. So you have to drop $1,500 initially to become a member and then get on the health and, and pension plan whatever but then that's it um and then they take one percent of your your earnings you know on top of that uh so suddenly i was in the guild and it was you know this it was a whole new it was a whole new world you know i was a professional i was truly a professional writer at that point and it was did you go to um, guild meetings or something just to meet yeah, other writers they, they, or? They, they had um at this time, they had uh, they were having some what they called outreach meetings because they knew the strike was looming, and so they were um, uh, having very small gatherings. In uh, like certain m- guild members would open up their home to a couple dozen writers, to, hmm. and they would come in, and somebody from the guild would come there and talk about the latest ne- contract negotiations and what was to be expected and, and inform us a bit of what was going on. Um, my roommate, my former roommate uh, at this time was uh, Gregory Wyden, who uh, uh, wrote um, Highlander. Oh. and uh, uh, Just the first one? Well, that's all. Greg never has to work a day in his life that's again, true. you know, really, because his name's on everything else subsequent to that. So mm. he collects a paycheck for it. But he did other things, too. I mean, he wrote uh, Backdraft for Ron, oh, ha- wow. Ron Howard. And, um, and uh, ask him how um, he was dressed when he met Grazer. No, I was kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, but Greg got into the guild uh, just a bit before I did, I think, um, and off the Highlander deal. And and so he and I were, were basically sort of rookies. So, so we were going to a lot of these, these outreach meetings together. And I remember this initial one, I was blown away because um, there were maybe a dozen people at this, at this one meeting. And one of them was like Paul Mazursky, who was you know, a well-known writer, director, you know, at that time, former actor as well. 
and Julius Epstein was there, and this That's little right. this little guy who's you know about four feet tall and about eighty years old. It's one of the writers of Casablanca. Oh, geez, that's right. It sounds familiar. You know, and you just go, wow, that's where it was like suddenly it's like, oh, my God. I'm, I'm, these are these are like names, you know. That like, I mean, real pros. I mean, this this was like an amazing thing. Now, backing so, up real quick, so that was you, exciting. When you, you got know. in, when you first got the offer, like you realized it was happening. They're like, okay, let's make this happen. We're going to give you the initial payment. You're going to have to get in the guild. Like I'm right. assuming all this stuff happened very quickly in a few weeks or it, a month or something. It, no, it, le- it was like super fast. One it, was, day. it was within oh, a couple of uh, a week or so. So your emotions, like, did you did you get a chance to like go out with friends or anything, or girlfriend, and say, let's celebrate? Just have like a, just a little toast or anything that you did that you like any type of little ceremony that said, whoa, this is cool. There was a group of us that came through the film school mm-hmm. or the theater arts department at UCLA um, at at the same time. Um, and actually, in retrospect, this, that whole era, I've been told by other people from the theater side, the drama department, that uh, it is generally regarded as being an extraordinary period from the, from the theater arts department. The, the UCLA theater arts department was, included film and drama. So they were, okay. they, were, they were sort of segregated, mm-hmm. if you will, but two different buildings, but basically we were all under under the roof of theater arts. Right, right. But out of that time, I mean, there was Tim Robbins, Daphne Zaniga, Alex Cox, uh, Greg Wyden, um, I mean, Dan Pine, uh, Neil Jimenez. I mean, there were so many people that were going, having huge success, like, I mean, very early on and, and would later go on to, you know, having extraordinary careers. Yeah. Um, but in my particular circle, it was Greg and I were, had been roommates. Uh, we had a guy named Mike Petzold who was um, aspiring producer. His girlfriend uh, at the time uh, ended up becoming uh, hugely important in my career because she was um, a development exec at Columbia when they had the doors. Hmm. And so I, you know, through her, uh, was able to get in and have a meeting about that. But that's a little bit further down the line. But Greg had grown up in, in Laguna Beach, and a good buddy of his, Don Knowlton, was also in the theater arts or in the, in the drama department, so he knew some, a number of people there. Anyway, there was a circle of, you know, four or five of us um, that were all writers uh, and, uh, and, or producers, aspiring producers, that anytime anyone had any sort of success, we would go out and celebrate. And usually it was, it was, you know, it wasn't anything like you're painting the town red, right. but we would always Little gather. Yeah, we yeah. would, yeah, we would gather. There was a place called Cafe Figaro, which was in West Hollywood. It was on uh, Robertson, right in, right where it almost dead ends to uh, Santa, Little Santa Monica Boulevard. And it, it was George Sand. I remember this very well because there's. I met Demi Demi Moore in the <laughs> bookstore there across the way after uh, uh, one time. But we would always convene at Cafe Figaro mm-hmm. and have drinks and dinner there. And it was like a real, just sort of a working 
yeah. working man's place, you know, but they always <laughs> had cute waitresses there, and it was just a place where, you know, lonely writers would go and <laughs> hope to score, you know. <laughs> you know, so that was, uh, that was the kind of thing that we would do. It wasn't, um, you know, um, I always had a sense that, you know, this stuff was fleeting, you know, and it was never going to be, you know, you just... It, that there was always going to be challenges further ahead just right. to don't let it go like, wow, I've made it. And it's, you know, and there's no turning back. No, it's not like that. Because even once you've sort of quote unquote arrived, <laughs> there's always stuff going on um, that you, you know, you get racked with self-doubt. You, you write something that isn't received well. All these things that can sort of trip you up at one time or another and it. You know, Hollywood in general is a place that just uh, one of the fuels that runs it is insecurity and fear of losing one's stature, of losing one's job, mm-hmm. you know, losing, <laughs> losing face, you know. And uh, so that, that informs a lot of decision-making and a lot of, of you know, artistic decisions, uh, right. unfortunately, you know. Um, but... <laughs> At that time, though, still, I was on cloud nine, man. I just freaking, I couldn't believe it. I was just thrilled. uh, (laughs) And then later on, it was funny. um, It wasn't wasn't that strike because it didn't last long enough. It was a strike in 88 that I started seeing um, because I was a strike captain. Um, The guild had asked me to be a guy that would have to call. Okay. Um, you know, here's the phone numbers of a dozen writers. So uh, we're going to uh, picket 20th Century Fox tomorrow. Got it. You've got to call all these guys and tell them to be there and what right. time they're going to be there and this and that. And in the 88 strike, you know, you have, we have these just these massive um, uh, pickets, mm-hmm. know, one studio at a time. So there would be hundreds of writers out picketing, you know, marching up to the end of the block and then back down, you know, up and down and back and act really angry, shake your signs, you know. <laughs> and uh, so invariably, you know, you're, there are these two columns you're going and you're passing guys walking in the opposite direction, you know, and you see their faces. So, you know, you would see guys that I'd always admired, uh, Harlan Ellison, um, uh, Richard Brooks, uh, you know, great writers and directors and then I, <laughs> I see Ray Bradbury. Ray Bradbury had been a real inspiration for me ever since. Uh, um, oh God, I was. Like you talking about college or your high school? Twelve. This is going back to high school, right? Right. You know where I was. Like, even like I started reading Ray Bradbury short stories when I was about twelve or thirteen years old, and he. I did my high school term paper, English term paper on his work. And then he came down and spoke to at a local college where I was at, out at Maricosta, uh, where I was. Um, and I went to see him at the time. And I was like, couldn't believe that was actually a living, breathing writer, like one of my idols right there, up there on stage. <laughs> I was sitting in the front row. And afterwards, I went up and just told him I did my term paper on you and I, you know, in English this year. And he said, Oh, great. Here's my card, you know, write me. (laughs) And I did. And I I think he asked for a copy of it, of of the report or whatever. And so I sent it to him and he sent back like a whole little package of, of stuff that he had autographed and it was personally printed stuff. And it was just like, Oh my God, I couldn't believe it. So cut two years later, I come to L.A. and just in my very first, you know, month at, at UCLA, and I went into um, 
I knew where he lived. It wasn't too far from where we lived. That was one of the first things I, I wanted to see. It was like, where does a real writer live? You know? <laughs> and I found his address down in, um, in, in uh, uh, a certain part of West L.A. there. But, but anyway, he was signing books one time at a bookstore in Westwood. And I went in. This is, like, like I said, my first month there. And I went up and... Um, I was just, again, sort of in awe and just sort of freaking out. And, like, and he said, yes. And I said, I, 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 well, we've met before and whatever. And yes, yes. I said, I want to be a writer. And he said, well, do you write every day? And I said, no. And he said, then you're not a writer. Next. You know? You know? And, and I was like, oh, I was so angry. And I was like, right, wow, right. I felt like I'd been you know, snubbed. You know? Yeah, yeah. And it was really, really made me mad. Um, but he was right. You know, I had to get, get my ass in gear. Get cracking, um, huh? Get cracking. And so come the strike in 88, I'm out there on the picket line, and here comes Bradbury walking the <laughs> opposite way. You know? He's got this giant head. He does. He's got a huge head. <laughs> and I see him coming, and so I stopped, and I said, hey, Ray. And I, I said, you, don't, you won't really remember me, but blah, blah, blah. I, um, and he goes, oh, you know, he was very friendly. And he said, and I said, so isn't this cool? Here we are on the strike line. We're writers. You know, we're peers. <laughs> you know? And, but I said, I still don't write every day. <laughs> so he sort of and laughed and moved on. <laughs> there you go. But that, would, you know, but that was the kind of thing. It was a, it was a thrill to just see some of these, these people that I had grown up and I was a, you know, in awe of and, and to be now sort of marching with them, to be part of that same organization, to be in the same arena was thrilling. Yeah. Yeah. You know. That's cool. That's the stuff like you know, I like said, I've heard a lot of interviews with – different writers and they sort of just kind of gloss over that as if it's like um just the way the interviews go it's they just sort of oh yes i got my agent and then i got this deal and then we moved on and i had to work on this story but no one ever stopped and like i wanted to know all those little intricacies of no. just the personal emotion that people have that says whoa this is trippy this is yeah. really crazy yeah. that I, i'm able to do this or i'm meeting somebody and and then you, because it it reflects on your own sort of, I guess self worth worth, and you're like, how am I here, you know, yeah. or that that kind of thing. And I think it's cool because it sounds it makes all this experience human. What uh, what I re- just recall now was after the dudes deal happened, um, my other roommate, um, Mike Petzold, um, he. At this, I think, guess so. It was at this for the dudes. Um, he and a very good friend of his, and had subse- subsequently become a friend of mine, a guy named, wonderful guy named John Hart, um, who had gone to USC film school and was a cameraman. Um, and he, John, we had met John because John shot Greg Wyden's Project Two, which was this year 16 millimeter film. Okay, and John was just this. He was from upstate New York. It was just completely different from any of us that had right. come, come from California, you know. And just really, John was just tremendously fun. Uh, but he and Mike kidnapped me, quote, unquote, <laughs> one, one night after this happened. And I remember this. They took me 
they took me down to, we went out we, way, way east, uh, downtown, right over the L.A. River. It was like, okay. the, it was like the Fourth Street Bridge or something like that. It was right, right. Way, a neat old bridge, whatever. But there, at this point, this was no man's land. There was no one out there. It was about 2 or 3 in the morning. And they, <laughs> um, and they pulled out a bottle of champagne, and they popped it. And they said, here's to... To me, <laughs> awesome um, man. You know, to say you know you're, you know, the beginning of a new career, and that that staggered me. That was a, that was a wonderful. I choked up. I had tears running down my cheeks at that point because it was so. Uh, it's cool. You know, it was just it was just a wonderful gesture, and those guys were, you know, like, you know, what can you say? I mean, I didn't. <laughs> there was not much to say, say, but but drink, it was, it share, was, yeah, yeah, be in the moment. Great. There was a there was a diner down there, a little bastion of light <laughs> uh, in the in that no man's land of you know art lofts and stuff at that time. It's called Gorky's. And it stayed open. I think it, it might have been 24-7, you know, and they took me. We went there afterwards, uh, after we did that. And I remember eating. They, they had, like, Russian food and stuff. Uh, <laughs> and I remember eating there after that. Um, they always had hot waitresses there, too. And, uh, it is L.A. <laughs> oh, just, you know, God, all these art damaged, you know. And it, that was, yeah, that was a pretty neat night. That was, that was great. So it was a, it was a very... It was monumental for yeah. me, you know. Well, I really thank you for sharing because, sure. I mean, that's, it's cool. It's just cool to hear. I mean, it's cool to know that, yeah, we're all human and, and it's real. Like, the, I'm sure everyone has, the, those who are working professionally have these little moments where they feel like, just like it's little fleeting moments of, whoa, that feels good. But then, then but you know, next day you got to get on and work, but... Yeah. Well, I think it's a perfect place to stop the podcast. We've been talking for a while, and I think yeah. it's a great segue into the production of Dudes, and then how you got <laughs> how you got door, how you got to a chance to write the doors and, and yeah. all that stuff. Yeah. But That's I think this is fantastic awesome. because sure. we've covered in the first part sort of where you started, how you got into punk rock, and and why that music scene was important to you. And now we're in the second phase. So. Yeah. Well, I, let me just sign off a bit as we sign off. I mean, I got into punk rock by accident, really. I mean, because I was I was writing a script that was a murder mystery. I think I mentioned this before. That was a murder mystery mm-hmm. set in the punk rock scene of L.A. And uh, and it wasn't because I was really into punk rock. It's just that I thought it was a very exotic place to set a murder mystery. Mm-hmm. Okay, And so I started attending all these shows as research, you know, for... You know, for the for the stuff, and I had made friends with all these bands because I started contacting them. And I would read what you know the the cool bands, what the cool bands were, and there had been some that were associated with UCLA Film School as well. So I started, um, I kn- knew of them and whatever. So that's how I really got in, started getting into the music thing. The the the, the script panned out. I could. I right. never finished it. I wrote right. like twenty-five pages of it or thirty pages of it, and then I put it away. But I had. I think all these, somebody got a hold know. of it because I think actually I saw a TV show that had that premise. Oh, is that right? It was like it was like Cagney and Lacey or something, some kind of oh, cop show funny. back then. Yeah. That it starts off at a punk show where people are a mosh dancing and, and there's a murder. 
And then, then the whole scene surrounds the whole punk rock scene of murder. So anyway, yeah. it made it to, I don't know, Murder, She Wrote. I'm just letting <laughs> you say, it, it's, I've seen that premise. Yeah. And I'm assuming that somebody found it. Yeah, maybe so, maybe. But what you know, whatever the case was, I mean, that that's why I began investigating a lot of this, you know, initially. And then the music, but... I mean, after the script panned out, I still had all these contacts with these bands, and I was kind of, I started really digging the music. And, yeah. And so that's that started then leading to the notion of like, wow, maybe I could direct some music videos for these guys, because <laughs> they were all broke. They didn't have any kind of money, right, and I right. didn't have any kind of money. So I said, maybe we could just do cheat and do stuff on the complete fly here and see what happens and so that's you know and but that's what? another story as well yeah. because i was doing all these videos working with black flag henry rollins writing writing dudes the door and then starting the doors thing was it was all like happening it was a at once from about 84 to to 80 86 mm-hmm. and even you know beyond that it was a very highly Busy time for Gosh, me. This is so crazy. I yeah. was skateboarding yeah. at that time, uh-huh. and obviously the, the skateboarding culture bled into that. Sure, that was oh, the yeah. music of the time, and yeah. like all the older kids um, were, you know, into the punk scene, and especially Southern California. Yeah, and uh, you know, it was different because you're like, I don't hear this on the radio. Oh, yeah. Like you oh, see, yeah. like this is such a, a subculture than what is being sh- uh, out there on TV, mm-hmm. and it was sort of like the first opportunity of like independence. And skateboarding was definitely embedded with the um, the punk scene, you know, especially I think with the Z Town boys and yeah, you know, that whole Long Beach scene and uh, Venice Beach scene, and all embedded, no doubt, all embedded, and yeah. the look, the wear, the attitude, yeah. and then. But that, that's how I, you know, obviously my upbringing with a lot, a lot of other Southern California kids that are in the scene probably saw it the same way. So sure. to know that you were making and, and inter- interacting with those bands where I was just like a bystander of a kid just picking up whatever records I can at back then, Tower Records or, yeah. or what's it called? Licorice Pizza? Remember that? Yeah, Licorice sure. Store? Of okay, anyway. Of <laughs> I think a lot of my first albums. Jeez, um, you know. Yeah. And I, the best thing is my, I think my dad eventually saw some of the stuff. I was going to punk shows and yeah. like, I come back with like the the pamphlets and stuff. Yeah, I'm only like 12, 13 at the time. Oh, so he's come, he's looking at this going, yeah. what the hell? Yeah. <laughs> he's looking, he's like, he was like really disturbed. Like, what is going on with my son? <laughs> I remember seeing a picture of uh, the Sex Pistols in some. It was like Parade magazine, mm. and they were like, you know, warning about the new horrible trend in you know rock and roll or whatever. And it's Your the youth, Sex right. Pistols, and they look like some just like oh a freak show thing. And I was so horrified. I thought, oh no, rock and roll isn't coming to this because prior th- this is of course back in like 77, 70, right, right. 78 when I was just I was 77 was my senior year in high school. And I hadn't come to I wasn't going to go to LA until my junior year. I transferred up from a from a community college. So I was still in kind of the fishbowl of Carlsbad, California. But you know, 
I was listening to Yes and the movie right. Blues right. and Emerson, Lake, and Palmer and you know, all the prog <laughs> the rock. The rock arena. Well, yeah. yeah, the prog rock, you know, yeah, prog and rock, rock you, you know, rock, yeah. and the arena rock kind of stuff. And then this whole thing of the Sex Pistols, ooh, it just sounded, it just sounded wrong. You know? <laughs> and I was so intimidated and threatened by what they looked like and everything. And then, then I get up to L.A. and it was just, it all changed. It all right. changed. And all that stuff just still resonates with me hugely because it's, it's a pro, it's a, it represents an approach to creativity that is so resonant still today. You know, I mean, it hmm. really, it's it's about doing it yourself. And DIY? It's, yeah, DIY, man. DIY. I mean, this was the original <laughs> DIY stuff. And uh, But that's another story, and we'll pick that up next well, time. Well, sounds perfect. <laughs> well, I think we'll wrap it up for tonight. I I was good. Felt good. We'll welcome our hey, Mars hey, together. We, <laughs> we got a little uh, so, cameo from oh. my friend Frederick and yeah, before man. he takes off. Oh, sure. I well, think he's like here every night before he takes off. <laughs> this is the launch pad. I think that's what it is. I'll see what happens yeah. Saturday night. Well, yeah. hey, guys. Thanks for uh, tuning in. We'll talk to you guys later.